0: Thanks, Josh, for reading that. All right, kids are dismissed. If you are a child between, I think, birth through sixth grade, you can head out those doors now. Your family, you're welcome to keep your kids in here um, during the sermon as well, if you want. Uh, If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to take them out and open up to Luke chapter 10, where we will be spending our time this morning, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. Luke 10, 25 to 37. Um, And while you're turning there, we'll wanna just wish all the fathers in the house happy Father's Day. Um, Hopefully today is a tremendous blessing for you and that you feel loved and cared for. Um, We love you, we're glad that you're a part of this church and hope today is a special day for you. In fact, we, we so want it to be a special day for you that we have a basket of root beer barrels. Yes, root beer barrels, folks. Um, waiting for you as you leave. You can reach in that basket and grab a handful. I was so tempted not to make that announcement, all right, so that I could enjoy all those root beer barrels by myself. But so be it. Have, please take some with you, okay? Um, Luke chapter 10, 25 to 37. Before we look at this text, I'll just tell you a quick story, okay? A quick story, if that's Okay. Um, When I think about my dad, one of the... There's so many things that I'm grateful for that I love, admire, I appreciate about my father. But one of the words that comes to mind right away when I think about my father is, he is a helpful man. Could use many, many different words to describe him, but he is a helpful man. Through my life... Um, I have found myself facing, maybe like you, um, one impossible task after another. And along my journey, whenever it feels like the road is getting maybe unable for me to navigate by myself and I feel like I'm in need of help, I will reach out. And he is one of the first people that I call because he is always willing and ready to help. Just a number of years ago, our water heater in our house was going out. And I don't remember exactly what prompted me, if it was not working exactly, what the it just needed to be replaced. And so I had a couple of options. I could either A, call up a plumber, somebody who could install a new water heater, or I could B, as many of you may find yourselves doing these days, get on YouTube, and asked myself the question, how hard is it to replace a water heater? And so I opted for option B. I went on YouTube, I you know, searched video after video after video, <clears throat> and eventually I came to the decision that I can do this. This is easy, I can do that, come on. This is like straightforward as it gets. Now there were a handful of challenges that I, so I I also talked to my dad throughout this process and I think he could sense what was coming, that I was actually not able to do this and so he carved out some time on a Friday and committed a number of hours to helping me replace our water heater and it was a good thing that he did because all the videos I saw had like this open basement where just like all that's there is water heater. The the water lines are like just straight into it and that was completely not the situation that I was dealing with. I had a small closet downstairs. It was a tight fit. The water was coming, uh, water lines were coming this way out of the wall. They had to be bent around and shot down into the water heater. It was way more complicated than I thought it was going to be. In fact, it took probably about six to eight hours total for me and my dad to replace this water heater, and we could never get the water pipes. Like, you, you can't, sweat the pipe, is that what they call it, I think? Is that what they call it? You can't really sweat the pipe if there's water still in the pipes. The soldering doesn't actually hold. And so we got it set, and then we would turn on the water and then drip drip, drip, and we would redo it all over again. And I never realized how many creative words you can use as substitutes for swear words as I did on that afternoon. My dear mother was in the living room just praying for us the whole time. Um, I was facing an impossible task. Really, it was impossible if I was left to do it. If it was just me on my own, I guarantee you, that water heater would not be installed. I needed help. And my father provided just what I needed. He who has ears, let him hear. Folks, the story that we are in this morning, the parable of the Good Samaritan, it is, I would say, arguably one of Jesus' most well-known Parables. I'd say it's right up there with the parable of the prodigal son. It is a parable that many would be able to identify in our culture, in our day and age, who have almost zero familiarity with Jesus, with the Bible, or with parables in general. In fact, it's so common that we even have laws that are named the Good Samaritan law. When people say the Good Samaritan, almost everybody knows, can conceptualize, sort of, what somebody is referring to. It is so widely known But I would, as I've studied it this week, I've also come to realize, not just is it widely known, it's also widely misunderstood. And so my hope is that this morning, that as we spend some time looking at this really fantastic story that Jesus told, that we would get some clarity on exactly what Jesus meant. And my hope is, what we'll see this morning is this as sort of the big idea. That this nearly impossible task That Jesus has called us to is possible only with his help. And that task for you and for me is very simple. Be a neighbor to all. Not as easy as you thought. Be a neighbor to all. God has, we'll see this morning, shown us in his son, Jesus, a tremendous amount of grace and mercy. And he has designed it in such a way that his grace and that his mercy that he has revealed to us, that he has demonstrated, that he has given freely to us, would flow through us as we are neighbors to all. So, Hopefully we'll see that this morning. I'm gonna pray for us and that we will dive in. Father God, Lord, as we look at your word as it comes to us this morning, eternal and true, we ask that you would take this word, Father, and that you would write it on our hearts, that you would use it this morning, God, to shape us, to form us into the people that you have made us to be, and that you would cause your spirit within us, Lord, to generate obedience to your word and love and affection for your son. We ask all of these things in the name of Jesus, amen. Be a neighbor to all. To help us see and be encouraged in that way this morning, we're gonna look at three different things. First, we'll consider the setting. Then we'll look at the story. And then finally together, we'll consider the significance, the setting. This parable, while it is widely known and familiar with most people, oftentimes what's lost is the setting. What prompts, what initiates Jesus to launch into one of the greatest stories ever told? Well, it's simply a question. Actually, it's two questions. That The first question is concerning salvation, and the second question is concerning sort of life in the kingdom. And if you remember, as we've talked about what parables are, generally they can be lumped into those two categories. The parables that Jesus tells us either describe how we enter into the kingdom, generally, or how we live within the kingdom, and this parable, it comes as a result of a, a question, two questions asking Jesus in those two realms, how one enters the kingdom and how one lives within the kingdom. The first question, which while likely it's not asked in good faith, but with bad motive, the, the lawyer, as he approaches Jesus and asks the question, is, is testing Jesus. And we see this often throughout the Gospels. He's trying to sort of back Jesus into a corner. In itself, the question, while the motive is not pure and good, the question itself is a fine question. It's a fantastic question. In fact, it is such an important question. Essentially, what the lawyer is asking Jesus is, what is the goal in life? How does one achieve this goal? And This is a question that's been asked by humanity throughout the ages. In fact, if you just look at some of Luke's writing, you'll see the question show up time and time again. We see it here in Luke 10. We'll see it again in Luke 18 when Jesus is approached by the rich young ruler. The question that it's asked is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We see it again in Luke's writings in Acts chapter 2, verse 37. If you remember, Peter preaches this amazing sermon, the beginning of the church, and God's word just pierces the heart of all those who hear it, and their response is they're blown away as he exposits the word. Their response is, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What shall we do to inherit this life that you're talking about? We see it again in Acts chapter 16. Do you remember the, the Paul and Silas in the jail and the, Philipp, uh, the Philippian jailer? The, there's an earthquake that happens and the doors fling open and the jailer is sitting outside assuming that they had vanished, disappeared, escaped, knowing that this would mean his life. But he peers in and he sees Peter and Silas and say, fear not, we're here, we haven't left. And instantly this man is overwhelmed by this sign. And he says, what must I do to be saved? Over and over again throughout the Bible, this question comes up. It is the most important question that somebody can ask. And this question that it's asked throughout the Bible indicates that Jewish people during Jesus' day were very concerned about the reality of eternal life and the question of how one inherits it. How can I guarantee that I will be able to answer this question in an acceptable way? When I stand before God, how can I be sure that I will be accepted by God? What's my guarantee? That my sins, that there's a way for my sins to be forgiven. What's interesting about the way that the lawyer frames the question is that he makes the assumption that there's something he must do. What must I do to inherit, to earn, to achieve eternal life? This is an... Remarkably important question. Not just is it being asked throughout the Bible, but the reality is it's being asked ever since in the hearts of men and women, young and old alike. What can we do to inherit eternal life? There must be something that is done. I was just recently with a friend who was reflecting, who was remembering on a significant moment in his life. A moment when he would say he completely dropped the ball. And, and his, his sin had dramatic and real consequences in his life. And with his sin right before him, it was almost as if, you know, this is an individual who grew up in the church, who knew and understood the gospel, had received Jesus as his Savior long before this moment but with his sin right before him in a way that was so obvious, so unable for him to deny. What he recognized in that moment was that something needed to be done. Something, he realized that he was a sinful person and something had to be done I don't know if you can relate, if you've had moments in in your life when you've recognized your sin, your fragility, your vulnerability, your inability to reconcile yourself with God. It's in those moments when we realize something has to be done. The lawyer gets that part. Something needs to be done. What he doesn't understand is that he's not the one who's able to do it. So Jesus, in response to this question, it's interesting how he responds, he points the lawyer immediately back to scripture. Most significant question that you can ask, Jesus is saying, it's found in the Bible. Not surprising, right? Jesus says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? This, folks, is so crucial. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's essentially saying that the question you're asking, the question that mankind has been asking since day one, that question, the answer to that question is found in the Bible. And this is so key for us to see, for us to make. This is such an important observation for us to make in our day and age. A wonderful reminder that for life's most foundational questions. The Bible stands, this is what Jesus is saying, as authoritative. The answer is in the Bible. And, and I don't know about you, but it's it's so tempting to follow sort of the cultural winds in whichever direction that they blow. It's, it's so common for us today to hear, and, and likely in Jesus's day as well, well, I know what the Bible says, but... I think, or I know what the Bible says, but I feel, or I know what the Bible says, but my truth is. so common for us to hear those expressions, to be tempted to think that there is an authority outside of the Bible, and usually it's not surprising that we default to the authority as ourself and not God's Word. Jesus is telling the lawyer, the expert in the law, And when he says expert in law, we're talking an expert in the Old Testament scriptures. That the answer to this question is found in the Bible. Which really for us is is one of the first points of application. Brothers and sisters, you cannot follow Jesus and simultaneously reject his word. You can't do it. Jesus is making that point here. So how does the lawyer respond as Jesus says, well, what does the Bible say? He's got a great answer. He essentially quotes and summarizes Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18 and essentially says, love the Lord your God with everything you have and love the neighbor as yourself. This is, like I said, a summary, essentially, not just of those verses, but really a summary of the entire Old Testament. It's It's a summary of the Ten Commandments. What does God require from you that you give your heart fully to God that you vertically love God with everything that you have and horizontally love those around you as yourself. That's what the 10 commandments were designed to cultivate in us, a love upward for God and outward for each other. This is, this is a great answer. And Jesus replies, says it's a great answer. Basically, he says, bingo, you got it. That's the answer. You're right. But that's not all Jesus says. Look at verse 28. He says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. How do you inherit eternal life? Love God with everything you've got and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus, that's right. Go and do it. Jesus' response, do this. He gives it twice. He says it once in verse 28, and then he says it again at the very end in verse 37. You go and do likewise. This is so crucial to understand what is happening in this text, to make that observation. Jesus' primary concern is not that he is unable, that the lawyer is unable to give the right answer, but that he is unable to do the answer he gives. I'll say that again. Jesus' primary concern with the lawyer is not that the lawyer is unable to provide the right answer to the question, but rather that the lawyer is unable to do the answer that he knows. Now, this, the lawyer knows the law What his job is. The word that's used here in in Luke, it's often used for lawyer. It's often used by Luke as scribe. The lawyer knows the law. He's internalized it. He's memorized it. He's committed it to his memory. He's buried it in his mind. But he has not done it. He's internalized it. But not externalized it. It's not displayed in his life. This is a similar sort of parallel text to Luke 18 when Jesus has an interaction with the rich young ruler, where the question is posed to Jesus by a different person How do you inherit eternal life? Same exact question. And Jesus' response is basically, you know what the law commands, he lists off several commandments, do this. The response from the rich young ruler, I've done all of that. I've kept all of those commandments. Every single one of them I've kept. I've loved God. I've loved others. And then Jesus' response to that is fascinating. He says, essentially, oh, okay, you've kept the law. Well, try this. Why don't you go and sell everything that you have and give to the poor? Oh, you've kept the law. You've kept the Ten Commandments. Well, let's start with the first one loving the Lord your God, keeping nothing above Him, that there is one God and you are to love Him. Take the money that you actually placed above God and give it to everybody else, give it to the poor, those in need. And the response of the rich young ruler he walks away sad. Jesus' response is, you know the law, but you can't do the law. It's exactly what Jesus is doing here with the lawyer. But in this situation, in Luke 10, he tells a story to make his point. That's the setting, a question, a good question, a question that likely many of you in this room are asking or have asked, What is required to inherit eternal life? What must I do? It's at this point that Jesus then goes to tell a story. In order that the lawyer might see the sin in his own heart. And we've talked about this. Oftentimes, what's so wonderful, the reason why these parables are such fantastic teaching devices, teaching tools, is because oftentimes, it's easier to see sin in other people before you can see it in yourself. So Jesus tells a story that invites the lawyer to look at a host of characters betting that this man would be able to see the sin that's present with these individuals before he would see it in his own life and quite honestly you and I are like this are very similar to that. Jesus' story comes as a response to the lawyer's second question. Okay, I'm supposed to love my neighbor, got it. Again, trying to sort of back Jesus into a corner. Well then, Jesus, tell me who is my neighbor? Luke tells us that this is an attempt, the question is an attempt to justify himself. This is an attempt, the lawyer essentially wants to sort of soften the demand. But Jesus, he ain't going The lawyer wants him to sort of define your terms, Jesus. Who is my neighbor? Now, for for Jews and especially for Pharisees, for those who were righteous Jews in the day, the answer to this question would have been very easily definable. Would have been obvious. Who is my neighbor? The circle would have been clear. It was a small circle. Their neighbor would have been another Jew, especially another righteous Jew, preferably. Those outside of the Jewish community were considered essentially outside of the neighborhood of God. And those outside the neighborhood of God, perhaps the most despised of the day, would have been the Samaritans. Definitely, they would not have been a neighbor. Who were the neighbors, those within the neighborhood? They would have been fellow Jews. Those outside of the neighborhood, maybe the ones closest in proximity, would have been the Samaritans. Definitely not neighbor. During the captivity, those who would have remained, they intermarried with the pagans in the land, and that's where the Samaritan population came from. We know from Jesus' interaction with the woman in the well that they had a different temple, that they identified as the holy place, and that was on Mount Gerizim. They favored that temple over the one in Jerusalem. When the Jews came back from captivity, began to build their temple, began to build the wall in the temple, the Samaritans in the land would have taken pigs. This is how deep back this goes, some 500 years beforehand. They would have taken pigs and thrown them into the construction site. Dead pigs just thrown them into the construction site. This would have caused the construction of the temple, the wall to become ceremonial, ceremonially unclean. It would have required the Jews to stop and to give special attention to, to clean the site. It would have completely brought all of the work to a halt. The history between these two groups of people goes way back. In the Bible, it's very clear. It says in the New Testament that the Jews were very clear to have no dealings. With Samaritans, certainly Samaritans would be outside the neighborhood of God. And with the lawyer, it's important to understand what the lawyer is doing. He's essentially looking for sort of the minimum level of obedience that's required. But as Jesus tells the story, essentially he moves him from minimum obedience and says that actually total obedience is what I'm looking for lawyer's looking for a direct answer. What does Jesus do? Gives him a parable, tells him a story. Says that there's a man. Many think that this person is a Jewish man, likely. Unsure of, but likely he is. From Jerusalem, he's going down on the road to Jericho. This would have been a 17-mile journey. 17-mile journey, and this road would have been sort of desolate, it was a dangerous road. It had rocks, caves, caverns, all sorts of different places for people to hide along the way. Jericho would have been a town that was built around an oasis, and so it was a desirable place. It was a place that merchants would go because it had a wellspring of of water and life. It was a great place to go and be. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho was not an easy road to navigate, and everybody would have known it. So the minute he talks about this road, This is a familiar setting, a familiar location. They potentially have found themselves walking, found themselves, his lawyer probably found himself coming across a very similar scene. Robbers, thieves would hide in the caves, hide in the caverns, and use it as an opportunity to assault people, to rob them, and to take for their own gain. And this man finds himself traveling alone. He comes across a group of thieves, likely very common and believable scene, the thieves, we're told, strip him. They beat him. They take everything from him. They leave him, the parable says, with, as if he's half dead. All sort of markers of identity, his, any sort of affiliation that maybe his clothes would signal he belongs to this group of people, removed from him. This person is just a half dead human being. Who knows what religion he is? what part of the world he comes from, he's just half dead, left. He's a victim of a savage beating. And if no one comes to his rescue, the story basically says he's going to die. That's how bad the situation is. So the first person that comes along the scene is a priest. A priest. He comes along, this is a clergyman. This priest is a servant of God. If there's anybody who understands the mercy of God, it's this man. He ministers, works in the temple. He represents the epitome of godliness. And we're told, the Bible says, that as the priest comes along, he saw the man. Saw him half dead, laying on the side of the road. He didn't fail to see him. He saw him in his filth, he saw him in his pain. He saw him in his need. And what does he do? Cross to the other side of the road. Continues on his on his way. Now Jesus doesn't tell us why. There's lots of assumptions and guesses as to why if he would be, there's all kinds of rules about helping with a, touching a corpse It would have left him ceremonially unclean, unable to perform his tasks as a priest. It would have been a major inconvenience. The types of rituals and what, all that he would have to go to, to to cleanse himself so that he could perform his duty, this would have set him off. And who knows what he was up to, okay? It would have been a major inconvenience. Then, next person who comes along is a Levite, consecrated man, a descendant of the tribe of Levi. And what does he do? Exactly the same thing. Sees the half dead man lying on the side of the road and he crosses to the other side. He sees him and crosses to the street. Two men, set apart, clergy, performing works of mercy. But not only did they not stop to help him, they got about as far away from him as they possibly could just in case they might come in contact with him. And then there's a third man, third character. Now, if you're a lawyer, if you're the lawyer listening to this story Again, you can't assume what's going on in his head, but it's very likely that he's thinking, okay, we're kind of working down the, those who work in the temple, those who are religious in our community, and we go from the priest to the Levite. Certainly the hero of the story is likely going to be the man of the law, the scribe, somebody like myself. Jesus is setting him up so that as he hears the story, he's thinking he's gonna be the one who emerges as the hero. Or if not a lawyer, maybe just a lay person. Maybe this is Jesus' opportunity to rail against the religious authorities of the day. So far, he's likely tracking with him. Jesus is inviting him closer and closer into to lean into this story. And then out of nowhere, the third person who comes along the scene is a Samaritan. You can imagine just even the sound of that word causes this man's skin likely to crawl, a Samaritan. Priests and a Levite go out of the way, but here comes a Samaritan to save the day. You can only imagine his amazement not when he discovers the hero of the story is not a member of the clergy, not himself, not even a nation of Israel, member of the nation of Israel, but somebody who lived outside the neighborhood of God. The Samaritan, we're told, comes to the place and when he, just like the Levite and the priest before him, he too sees the man laying there and we're told that he had compassion The very thing that the priest and the Levite lacked, he possesses. Now, we could have read this exact same story up until this point and saw that the Samaritan comes across the man, sees him, has compassion on him, and then says a prayer for him as he continues on his way. The story could have read like that. The story could also have read like, he comes across the man, the Samaritan sees him laying in his need and his misery, throws off a few coins from his pocket and continues on his way. The story could have read like that. He had compassion and he did the bare minimum. Could have read like that, but it doesn't. What we see is so obvious. What Jesus, the connection he's trying to make is that the compassion that existed in the Samaritan's heart gave birth to action, and not the, 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 the least amount of action. It was almost like he went above and beyond what any reasonable person would do. It's like it's the most amount of action that he could possibly give. He goes to him. He, he bandages his wounds. He takes oil and wine, not wine for the throat, but wine for the wound, just to be clear, to heal and places it on the wound. He he goes to him and, and begins to minister to him to care for him. He then picks him up, puts him on his own animal, and likely that uh, sort of has to walk his way to the inn while this individual rides on his animal. Who knows how many miles away it is, but he has to walk the whole way there. Completely inconveniences himself. Likely totally uncomfortable. He wasn't planning on walking this way. He was planning on riding. Brings him to the end. He even stays the night there. Gives extra money just to to the innkeeper, just to ensure that this individual is cared for. Everything that this man, this Samaritan, had planned for the day has to be completely rearranged. And Jesus, when he gets done telling the story looks at the, at the lawyer and doesn't ask him the same question. Says, which of these do you think was a neighbor? And the answer, well, it's obvious, right? The one who showed mercy. The lawyer could not even allow the word Samaritan to come out of his mouth. All he could say is the one who showed mercy. The one who showed mercy. The one whose compassion led him to action, to inconvenience, to sacrifice, to assist. It's a remarkable story. What's the significance of it? I said at the beginning that while this is one of the more famous parables, I think it's also one of the more misunderstood parables. And the reason for that is because I think there's really sort of two primary meanings. There's sort of the obvious meaning of the story. Let's just start there. What's What's the significance of the story first? You could summarize it like this How we treat other people matters. And there are no limits to who your neighbor is. There's no type, there's no profile to the person that you should love. No limits. The, the lawyer wants Jesus to sort of draw a circle, like geographically around his house. Show me how small that circle is. I think it's probably what he's looking for, right? And what Jesus says is, you want a circle? Okay, start with the globe. How about that? You, you want to draw a circle around your neighborhood, around God's neighborhood? Let's just start with humanity. How's that for a circle? Now, there's some that may advocate, R.C. Sproul is really helpful here, that there are some people who believe in what's called like a universal brotherhood, that everybody is just a part of the family of God. We all get into the kingdom of God. Well, you can't read the gospels and believe that there's such a thing as the universal brotherhood. Those who are a part of God's family have been adopted into his family. Through the blood of Jesus, our elder brother, they and only they are a part of the brotherhood of God. There's no universal brotherhood. But what this story reveals to us is, while there is no universal brotherhood, there is a universal neighborhood. There is a universal neighborhood. That is, every human being created in the image of God is Your neighbor is my neighbor, which means we are called to love every human being on the face of this earth as much as we love ourselves. When we see people in need, our first and normal instinct should not be, well, how did they get there? Our first instinct should be, what can I do to help? That's what a neighbor looks like. It's fascinating. I mean, this this guy laying on the side of the road had no ability to speak from what we can tell. He's half dead. The Samaritan didn't engage him in conversation, didn't approach him with a list to try and figure out, are you my neighbor? (laughs) Do you really deserve the inconvenience and sacrifice I'm about to give you. It's not how he approached the man. He saw him in his need. He moved towards him. He helped him. He loved him. advocated for him. He assisted for him. He gave finances. He helped him. It's important that as we consider this story, Jesus never refers to the Samaritan as the good Samaritan. That's you and me. That's a note that was added later. Jesus never calls him the good Samaritan. Certainly his actions were good. They were commendable. But Jesus never called him good. Why? Well, in reality, there's only one person who rightfully deserves that title. Only one person who is truly good. Jesus, fully God, fully man. The only one who is actually able to keep the law. One good man. His name is Jesus. See, what I think Jesus is doing with this story is he gives us an example of what, how God's mercy should operate in our life. It shouldn't dead end into our hearts. It should move into our hearts, overwhelm us, and flow through us to everybody around us. The problem with that is you and I can't actually do that. This standard that Jesus is setting, what he's trying to show with the story is that what he's asking of the lawyer is not actually possible. It's not. And that's sort of the main significance, main meaning of the parable, that it's impossible for this man, it's impossible for you, and for me to meet the legal standard that he's setting forth. Just like me with the water heater. There's no way, there's no way. I think about my relationship with my dad, how many times I found myself in desperate need of his help. There's, what I'm facing is impossible unless somebody else comes and helps me. And that's the lesson that Jesus is trying to teach This individual, and I believe he's trying to teach us as well. We cannot do this without his help. The man wants him to draw a circle so he knows exactly how far his mercy should extend around him, flow through him, how far his grace and compassion and love should go. Jesus doesn't do that. In fact, he shows the opposite. He shows him that the circle is all around humanity, that there are no limits, there are no boundaries on his mercy. If, if the Samaritan were to live totally and obediently like this, could you imagine like what a sequel would look like to this man's life? He would leave that hotel, that inn, and if he's walking back up the road, guess what? He's likely gonna come across another individual. There's likely gonna be another, maybe a woman stricken with leprosy that he that needs his help. Maybe a child who's abandoned, neglected that needs his help. In our world, we are overwhelmed in this room, overwhelmed with need, with pain. And if we give ourselves to every human being, well. It simply isn't possible. You don't have to imagine much more. It's just not possible. I mean, for you to love your neighbor perfectly as yourself, could you imagine, you're gonna be around a lot of children here at Faith Academy throughout the day. I can't imagine a child perfectly being able to do that. Right, here's your toys, here's your Christmas gift. Little six year old Timmy, enjoy. And then the minute a brother reaches up there and wants to play with it, you know? Like it's just natural to us. A child fully, constantly being able to see other people around them and treat them as themselves. Could you imagine a teenager being able to treat everybody around them, love them as themselves? would be amazing. A young adult who's establishing a career, who's beginning maybe a new life, loving somebody else, everybody else around them just as they love themselves. An adult, a senior, whatever phase of life you're in, what Jesus is trying to say is that this standard, it's like what he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You therefore be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, that's the bar. What Jesus is showing with the parable of the Good Samaritan is yes, the way you treat everybody around you matters. That's that's the law. That's what I expect from you. I require obedience. And no matter how hard you try, you can't do it. You need help. See, the lawyer has a problem He knows the law. He recognizes the demands. And he also realizes his limitations. He's a limited person, just like you and me. Standard doesn't change, but in God's grace and in his mercy, he sent his son, the good man, to lay down his life for you and for me so that we can, while we're unable to meet all of the needs of every single human on the earth, we can navigate this earth, live our life, giving, serving, helping whoever God puts in front of us and going to sleep at the end of the day knowing that our assurance, the assurance of our salvation, that we can inherit eternal life not because we've loved everybody perfectly, but because Jesus has loved us perfectly. That's how we inherit eternal life. He's given us an example, a model to follow. And likely every single one of us is sitting here this morning thinking that there is one person, or maybe there's five people, or maybe there's a group of people that are almost impossible for us to love. He's not letting you off the hook first. You be a neighbor. Don't ask who's my neighbor. You, Jesus is saying, go and do likewise. You be a good neighbor. And trust Jesus for your salvation. It's only through him. Only through his grace and his mercy that we inherit eternal life. And if that's something that you have not done, put your trust in Jesus as your savior, I would love the chance to help you discover how you can do that. Even this morning, don't wait, don't wait. I would love the opportunity to connect with you and help you discover how you can have a personal relationship with Jesus. Be happy to meet you afterwards and help you talk more and pray more about that, okay? For now, let's go ahead and bow our head, and I'm gonna pray for us, and then we'll transition to a time of communion. Father God, we thank you so much that you have demonstrated your love to us, Lord, by sending Jesus to die for us. Lord, we recognize that the standard, the law that you've put out, Lord, that we cannot fully meet those demands as we consider our life and the struggle it is oftentimes to love people the way we're supposed to, We are a people who need help. And so, Lord, I pray that we would take our cues from Jesus, that we would see how he loves others, Lord, that we would learn from your word how we are to love others, and that your grace, that your mercy, your compassion would flow through us, flow through Parkview East, and that we would be a good neighbor. And that we, as we do that, Lord, that we would put your love and grace and mercy on display for others to see. Lord, we love you and we ask these things in the name of Jesus amen